morning, everyone. Let's pause for prayer. God, I pray that it would be normal in this place that people who love Jesus would follow him to full devotion. And may that be said of us, and more so even because we met together this morning because we opened up our hearts to your teaching voice. And may it be your Holy Spirit who brings transformation today for our own sakes and so that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, once again, good morning and welcome, uh, and uh, welcome to the first piece in this three-part series on getting your head out of your app. You know, we're fast approaching uh, summer, and I'm sure a lot of you are worried about uh, presenting your beach body for the five days of sun that we're going to have. Um, and so, you know, I remember growing up, it was a big deal. You did not want to show up uh, in summertime with the tan lines. You know, around where I grew up, it was the farmer tan. That was just an embarrassment. Well, <clears throat> that's um, uh, today's world where... Uh, cell phones never leave our hands. There, there might be a more embarrassing tan line problem. It was shown to me in this p- picture I saw this week. So we, we, we want to avoid that one at all costs. Okay, that's probably not a real problem related to our mobile devices. But there are real problems, like a uh, texting thumb. Yes, it's a real thing. And some of you maybe have had this. So this is an actual case of tendonitis in the outside ligaments of the thumbs, and it comes from swiping your thumbs repeatedly and r- rapidly across a small screen. I can't, I can't text like this. I don't know how people do it, but people who do it a lot get texting thumb. So there's problems, right, associated with technology, but that's not what you think when you think technology. When you think technology, you think benefits, right? You think of all the ways in which it's diminishing pain and it's enhancing pleasure. You think about that phone in your pocket, which has twice as much, three times as much, four times as much computing power as that which sent the Saturn V rocket to the moon. That's amazing. And you think about all this at your fingertips now and all the stuff we have access to and technology and information. All we think about are the benefits. But more and more, and you're probably noticing it outside the church as much as inside the church in a series like this, people are beginning to sound the alarm. They're starting to notice that there may be some things that we're losing in all of the benefits of our technology, in this need that we seem to have developed for 24-7 interconnection, this constant access to information and entertainment at our fingertips. We're finding there's actually a cost to this. There's a cost to us, not just like physically with texting thumb. That's like the least of our problems. Now we're finding greater problems with relationship issues and with social problems and even addiction issues related to technology. It's become so bad, AC3, it's become so bad that corporations who develop the apps are now using our frustration, a collective frustration we're feeling at everybody's heads in their apps, to sell us more product. Now think about that for a second. That's no lie. Just this week, one of you showed me the new Cabela's Pledge, which is a playoff of the Pledge of Allegiance. They stole not only our title for the series, but also like us, which we did in, uh, in January, When we called for a media fast, that's what they did in this pledge. Let me read it. This is Cabela's pledge. I pledge to myself and to my family, for which I stand, that for one day I will unplug it, power it off, shut it down, in order to look up and look around. I will set aside the small screen to once again see the big picture. On this day, I will not use any smartphones, tablets, phablets, desktops, laptops, notebooks, video chats, instant messaging, emails, tweets, Grams that are instant, links that are in, or faces that have been booked. Notice the careful avoidance of copyright infringement there. And most of all, I pledge to get my head out of my app with liberty and just us 
for all. Very clever, right? But what you don't want to notice in this is that if this huge multinational corporation, which makes tons of money off of its internet marketing and its mobile app, if this sees a problem with everyone's heads in their apps, then you know it's a problem, right? And I'm sure that though they're calling for one uh, media fast day, they don't want any more than one or else they're probably going to go bankrupt. The point is, is that we're all starting to feel the corruption of something really important in our constant interconnectedness. We're starting to feel the corruption of things that really matter, things that seem to be like central to what it means to be human, really important things. But now what are those things? A lot of people, you know, can't necessarily define it. It's nebulous. We know there's a cost, but we can't, we're not really sure what it is exactly. What are we losing? What things are being corrupted in this? Well, the Bible will give us an answer. Christianity gives us an answer to what, what's potentially being corrupted or lost in all of this. And these are three things, three most important things, and we find them in the opening pages of the Bible. And here we find that we learn from our original human parents that we were created in a pristine condition in three ways. And these three ways in which we were created define our purpose. They define our existence. They define our mandate. They define our meaning. They define our source of fulfillment and joy. They define our significance in the universe in which we find ourselves and we wake up conscious and sentient and go, wow, what am I here for? And here are the three things we find ourselves made Four. You look at the creation account, and it repeatedly goes back to these three things relating to our purpose. Number one, beginning with unity with God. So in Genesis chapter 1, uh, we read, God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And then in the, uh, the complementary account in chapter 2, verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, <coughs> excuse me, and the man became a living being. And that literally means to became a living soul. Alone in creation, <clears throat> that's us. Alone in creation, we made in the image of God, male and female. Now, your skeptic friend would like to tell you that um, you are no different, really, than anything else in the animal kingdom. Different, perhaps, in the quantity of your intelligence, but certainly not in the quality of your intelligence, and they would be wrong if they would make that claim. Wrong because we're finding out more and more and more, the more we just study ourselves in the animal kingdom, that there's something fundamentally different about us, fundamentally different about the way we process information. Yes, we're finding out a lot of animals have conscious thoughts, even quasi-rational uh, abilities and problem-solving abilities, but alone in the animal kingdom, human beings have thoughts about their thoughts guy who stood on this stage, J.P. Moreland, is a, is a really significant Christian philosopher, and he specializes in the mind and soul issues. And he's saying more and more, this is what we're finding distinguishes us from the rest of the animal kingdom. We have thoughts about our thoughts. And as a result, we have a qualitative difference in our intelligence to anything else in the created order. We are capable of abstract thought, deep moral reasoning, reflection of purpose, the apprehension of truth, math, beauty, goodness, music, worship. And we seem to be incurably religious. In short, we were made for unity with God. We were made special in this way. Made for relationship. The Bible infers this beautiful picture where Adam 
is walking in the cool of the garden with God. There's a, a sense of intimacy and oneness, a sense of uh, communal friendship and loving togetherness. This is what we were made for. And you see it there in the opening page. But here's the second thing, community with others. Again, Genesis chapter 2, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is like him. And then later, same chapter, Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. So the second grand overarching purpose that we see in the creation account is community with each other. And of course, the most intimate of human communities is a marriage, right? And so there you see in the opening pages here, the man and the woman are experiencing a kind of communal fusion that is central to who they are and actually seems to reflect who God is. Because God, as we find out, is himself a communal fusion. Now, this comes into full bloom in the ministry of Jesus when he, Jesus says, I and the Father are one and the whole thing. And so we understand God is not a simplistic unity, but he is a complex unity of persons. But there, even in the opening accounts, you see it reflected or hinted at when God says, let us make man in our image. And yes, that seems to have a sense of uh, reflecting the, the divine court, as scholars talk about it including the heavenly host. And yet, we see in the ministry of Jesus a foreshadowing of the communal oneness of God. God is a community of persons, and part of our grand design is that we be a community of oneness. Oneness in diversity. And that's part of our purpose. That's what we were made for. We were made for community. On every coin that's stamped by the U.S. Mint are the Latin words, e pluribus unum, out of the many, one. And that's what we were made for. We were made for this kind of community. Well, if you're going to get that kind of community, a fusion of persons into one, what does that require? It immediately enjoins upon us this incredible responsibility of servanthood, self-giving, uh, sacrifice, honor, mutual submission, love, care. All that's implied in the grand purpose that we be communal with one another. But then thirdly, harmony with creation. Again, the creation account. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls upon the ground. And then again, the complementary account in chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. Okay, so, third grand and overarching purpose, what must not be lost in our technological world, spelled out in our creation mandates. We are to rule and subdue the earth, and we are to tend and care for the garden. A privilege and responsibility. There's um, this beautiful sense of a management that is called for. So this means that our purpose is to live in harmony with the created world around us. And we're not just foreigners to it, with no loyalty to the ground that we live on, because we were made from the ground. That's a fascinating connection, isn't it? You know, your, your skeptical friend is probably going to throw this in your face at some point and say, well, you know, you're just stardust. Well, long before, you know, Carl Sagan said that you're stardust, the Bible says you're just dust dust, right? I mean, you're just, you, we, we already knew that. We already knew that we were created from the pre-existing stuff of earth. 
And that, that humbles us, doesn't it? So there we're sitting there with this lofty sense of this mantle of made in the image of God, but don't get too heady about that. Because here you are made from the dirt, made from the stuff of earth. And so we have a loyalty to it. And that's a fascinating thing. Made from the ground, we have a responsibility to it. This forever banishes the, the, uh, the, exploiter, the exploiter's mindset from a Christian view of creation. And it's just sad that Christians had ever had that kind of mindset. Uh, because we are called to be stewards of something that doesn't belong to us. So we're overseers of it. We're managers of it. Some of you in this room are managers in your job. You're promoted. You were sort of a regular worker, and now you're promoted to management. And when you're promoted to management, you started realizing you had to treat the company as if it was yours, even though it doesn't belong to you. That's what it means to be a manager. And some privilege came along with it. I'm a manager. You're a manager, right? But you're also a manager. Dang it. You're responsible. And so the privilege comes with responsibility, and that is a part of the grand overarching creation purpose. So that's why we're here men and women, to live in unity with God, in community with each other, in harmony with creation. So the running theme behind all those three mandates, the running connective tissue is this, oneness. Oneness. Oneness with God. Oneness with one another. And oneness with God's world. And that's why we're here. That's what our great creation purposes are. A powerful, others-driven, love-directed oneness it's beautiful now what underlines how key this is to what we were made to be is that the bible says that our original human parents decided to cast off this purpose and god's design for them they refused to live in the sweet repose leaning on god and his goodness and trusting in him and instead sought god's spot and when they did they fell a catastrophic thing that the scholars will call the fall capital f the fall and that oneness we're talking about, oneness with God, oneness with one another, oneness with God's world, shattered, shattered. And like dominoes, all three of them, boom, 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 tip in quick succession. You can read about it yourself in Genesis chapter 3. They fell out of unity with God. God banishes them from the garden because of their sin. They fell out of community with each other and began alternately to desire and or dominate the other for their own purposes and desires. They fell out of harmony with creation, which now revolted against human care, groaning as it did now up to this present moment under a curse that we put on it. All these things, broken, shattered, AC3. Now, okay, that's what we were made for, and, it, and we fell out of it. But now let's go back with me to the beginning of the discussion. We said that we're all, including those outside the church and inside the church, we're all starting to feel the corruption of something really important, through our constant technological interconnectedness. Well, those are the three things that uh, we're beginning to feel the corruption of. And this week, I just want to focus on the first. We're going to go, hit them all in the next three weeks. Unity with God, community with one another, and harmony with creation. But this week, we'll just focus on the first creation purpose. And we're going to ask this question. In what ways exactly can my apps break unity with God? We're going to ask what the dark side of that might be. And I think that in answer to the question, there's two ways. And the two ways relate to the stages of the spiritual life, the spiritual journey. One as it relates to us before Christ, and one as it relates to us after Christ. Okay, so let's talk about that. 
At the beginning of the spiritual journey, when you're in the investigation phase, a spiritual seeker, before you become a follower of Jesus, the defining quality of your life is that you're in charge, not God. That's the defining quality of your spiritual life. You're calling the shots. Yeah, Christians obviously still have a will. But the, the, the great difference is, is that the will before Christ is firmly enthroned on the throne of the heart. Remember Dan talked about this last week? That was such a beautiful application of the talk. He said, in every human heart there is a throne. And God, if God is a back all things, wants to and deserves to sit on that throne as master, as leader, and loving parent. He desires to sit on the throne of your heart. And yet, who sits there? Before Christ, you sit there. You sit there. And uh, so, frankly, then, the drama of Eden is just recapitulated. That's a fancy word. It's just replayed. It's just replayed. The drama of Eden is just replayed in every person. Millions and millions and millions of times, it's just replayed. There's a throne in my heart. God wants to be there. He deserves to be there. He should be there. It goes well with me if he is there. And I say, no. Boom. God goes off the throne. I put myself on. And we seek God's spot. You say, no way, Rick. I, we'd never... I, God of the universe, are you kidding me? What hubris, what arrogance, what pride. No one would ever seek God's spot. No, understand something, friends. It's what God is that we want, not necessarily all of his responsibilities, like Bruce Almighty, you know, saying, uh, you know, I've got all, I've got all God's powers, you know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer everybody's prayers, and God says to him, no, those are, those are just the prayers from 32nd Street to 5th Avenue, you know. And he had no clue what it would be like to carry the responsibilities of God. No, no, that's not what we're talking about. Every single one of us seeks God's spot in this way. Desire to control, to set the rules for our own life, and to seek our own happiness in our own way. And that's seeking God's spot. So you may not want to run the universe. Fine. You don't have designs upon, you know, the Almighty in that way. But... Every one of us have a design for control to set the rules of our own life and to arrange for our own happiness in our own way. And we think to ourselves, as we desire God's spot, that gods don't have to deal with stuff that creatures have to deal with. That's what we envy. That's what we want. Gods don't have to deal with pain, so we think. Gods don't have to deal with boredom. Gods don't have to deal with sticky relationships or troublesome conversations or difficult responsibilities, do they? No. Gods don't have to talk when they'd rather be silent. Gods don't have to serve when they'd rather sit. Gods don't have to pay attention when they'd rather be self-absorbed. Or so we imagine what it means to have God's spot, to call our own shots, to, to, uh, to make up our own rules, and to arrange for our own happiness in our own way. So the promise of the tempter is you can be like God. You can find a place in this universe about which you can say, this is mine. But of course... AC3, if there is a God, and he has made all of this, and he stands aback all things, there is no such place. There's no such place. And then to seek a happiness apart from God, if God is there as the loving parent of the entire human race, it is a frustrated wish because it is to want what isn't possible. Oh, for a short period of time, perhaps, but not for eternity. It's, just a, it's, a, it's to wish for what isn't possible. Now, what does all this wanting to be God have to do with our apps, our technology? What does it have to do with that? Well, think about it. To the extent that our 24-7 connection habit and to the extent that our technology is keeping us from dealing with all those uncomfortable realities of being a creature rather than the creator, it is a God-maker to us. 
it, it tries to put us in the God's spot. It's a numbing agent. He pushes away pain. It pulls pleasure in. It's a God maker. It makes you a God, or at least the feelings of such. And in a sense, then, the thing that does that, that crowns you king of the universe, is itself like a thing you must bow down to because it is the thing that launches you into your God spot. Uh, I got a scene of this, or I got a picture of this as I was studying this week from The Lord of the Rings. I love the books. Uh, Tolkien's trilogy is awesome. And the movies as well. Some of you remember the scene then when Gandalf confronts Theoden King. I brought a couple pictures just to remind you of the scene. Remember this? He is an advisor. Do you remember what his na- the name of the advisor was? Wormtongue. So now I want you to think about this. Uh, there is Wormtongue, and he is under a spell. Theoden King is under a spell. Oh, Wormtongue is his constant companion, whispering things into his ear. And Theoden King thinks he's running his life. He thinks he's running his kingdom. He thinks he's the king and thinks he's in charge. But look what Wormtongue has done to the man. He's crimped him and he's pulled away life and vitality. He's old far beyond his years. Life has been sucked out of him. And oh, yes, uh, he has been promised to be distanced from all the problems that are going on in Middle Earth where the dark forces of Mordor are running rampant across the land. And he thinks he's safe. He thinks he's secure. And Wormtongue is keeping him isolated from all trouble and all the imminent war. Safe, secure, and still on the throne, Theoden King. You're still in charge. But we know different. He's not in charge. In becoming his own god, so to speak, he has become a puppet of Wormtongue who has stolen his strength And Gandalf comes into the meeting room and with the word breaks the curse on Theoden King. It's a beautiful picture of coming clear into the truth. And the tempter, the liar, is finally banished. And in that moment, if you'll forgive the connection, Theoden King gets his head out of his app. The king starts to live again. And the grayness falls from his skin and the life of vitality is infused into him and he realizes his kingdom is under imminent threat and he begins to live in the purposes of God as a manager, as a steward, and not as an owner, not as a God who thinks he can control for his own happiness and keep himself isolated from all pain forever. No, war is upon you, says Gandalf. And so he takes his place as a, as a creature, as a manager, as a steward, and not as an owner. And he engages in his great purpose to lead his people against what is evil and what is wrong. And he eventually will die on the Pelennor fields. And he will die with a smile on his face. Knowing that he took up his purpose, again, to be a creature, to be a manager, and not a god. Oh, what a powerful picture of conversion, A.C. It's a powerful picture of coming into Christ. The tempter has spoken his sweet lies to keep you numb from everything else. And this can represent, AC3, our own technology. Yes. Your phone isn't evil, friends. It's not evil. (laughs) But it it might just be numbing you up. It might just be, at times, I've got a phone, all right? I've got a phone, not inherently evil. But your phone might just, at times, be worm tongue to you. Because it makes us capable of near constant amnesia. 
or anesthesia, sorry, not amnesia, anesthesia against pain, amnesia about our purposes, our creation mandate, and almost constant buzz to enhance pleasure. And that does what? It puts you in the God chair. That puts you in the God chair. It's the wish of Eden. Now, some things that seem good but actually keep us from dealing with reality, with important things, with our grand purposes, they turn out to be idols. Idols of power, idols of control, so that we don't have to what? So that we don't have to feel like a creature. And who wants to feel like a creature at times? Because creatures feel sad, creatures feel desperate, creatures feel scared and alone and responsible and at times deeply burdened. But that is our lot. We are not nouns. As C.S. Lewis said, we are forever the adjectives. And that is, that is what it is to be a creature. And now what must we do with that? Well, what we should do is reach out for God's help. What we should do is trust in Him. What we should do is let Him fill our emptiness. What we should do is lean in gentle repose on His goodness and presence. What we should do is cry out to God to meet our deepest needs for peace and security and love and forgiveness and meaning. That's what we should do. But, hey, we got this thing right here, a little mobile device, and, uh, hey, it has a movie right now. And I can forget all my sadness, and I can forget my pain, and I can forget my moral wanderings, and I can forget my emptiness on the inside, because I got a chat room right here, and uh, I got Netflix, and I got a text buddy, and I got a distracting round of Facebook that I could engage in, and that could make me happy, or at least connected, or at least not bored. And in some way, I've reclaimed the throne again. But it only leaves me dry, AC3. It leaves me shriveled up and older than my years. Because I'm not participating alive in the purpose of God to be unified with him. To know him and to be known by him. Friend, I'm not mad at your cell phone. <laughs> I'm not. I'm really not. We should clarify that every week of the series. I don't think it's inherently evil. It's like money. It's like writing. It's like music. It's a tool. It's amoral in and of itself. You can use it for good purpose or bad. But is it distracting you <clears throat> from your great purpose on earth? And what is that again? What is that again? Let's go back to it. <coughs> Excuse me. Now is defined in the Westminster Catechism, which asks the question, the first and prime question of all things, what is the chief end of man? And the answer comes back. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You were made, AC3. You were made for unity with God. You were made for him. You're not an accident. You were made with purpose. Before you were even born, you were made in the purpose of God. The Bible says, I am your creator. You were in my care even before you were born. Isaiah 44, verse 2. Pastor and author Rick Warren will say, your birth was no mistake or mishap, and your life was no fluke of nature. Your parents may not have planned you, but God did. The Bible says, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Psalm 138, verse 8. The Bible says, you saw me before the, uh, I was born and scheduled each day of my life. Before I began to breathe, every day was recorded in your book. Psalm 39, verse 16. You know what? There may be illegitimate parents in this world, AC3, but there are no illegitimate children. And I've been in the foster system, and I can say this with authority. There are illegitimate parents. There are, are absolutely unprepared and illegitimate parents in this world. There are no illegitimate children. Because God had you in mind from before the creation of the world with purpose that you and he be united in one, that he know you and you know him, and you live in intimate communion with him. That's what you were made for. 
so listen, God wants to be in relationship with those he has intentionally made for such, with those who can know him. And guess what? That's why you're not happy with worm tongue whispering in your ear. That's why you're unsettled about it. Somewhere in the middle of the numbing up and the, and the excessive amount of distraction that we have because of technology, somewhere in the middle of that you know something's getting lost because you were made for more than that. You know you were. You were made for more than just money or more sex or status or popularity or even ease or pleasure or distraction from the pain of life. We, we want more than what worm tongue can offer us. We want more than what the serpent offers in the garden. But how? It's restored unity with God. And how does that happen? We must put away our idols, AC3, whatever they are finally. And you maybe recognize a, multiple, a multiplication of idols in your life. But whatever they are, whatever's sitting on that throne, that must be displaced. And that's just an act of repentance. That's a fancy word for just displacing whatever it is that's on the throne of your life. And what do you get? On the other side, life, true life. Speaking of which, Jesus shows up in the fullness of time and he prays this epic prayer right before he goes to the cross. He says, Father, you gave me authority so that I may give eternal life to all you have given me. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. Understand something, AC3. Eternal life, according to the Bible, is not the extension of your days. You could live someday, maybe by technology, to be 500 years old. That's not eternal life. This is eternal life, that you would know God. That you would know him as a child knows its parent, as a friend knows another friend, that you would know God and live in intimate communion with God, in restored oneness with God, in love and servanthood and obedience. That you would know the intimacy of peace and joy that can only be when you are caught up into the life, capital L, life, of the one who made you. That's eternal life. And it begins now, and it goes on. If Jesus is to be believed, it goes on past the grave. And so he says, this is life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent. He's talking about himself. He says, I, I have come that they might have life, capital L, life, and have it to the full. This is simply what you were made for, my friends what Jesus calls abundant, eternal life. And to find it, you are going to have to, at times, get your head out of your app. To find it, you're going to have to stop avoiding the eternal by keeping your eyes fixated night and day on the temporal. And if you want this life, you're going to have to restore, to restore what was lost in an act of faith and repentance. You're going to refine unity with God when you say, no more of that. I want life. That's what you were made for. And you come into it, and some of you have come into it just recently, and you're going to declare to the world in baptism coming up in June, I have life living in me now. It's awesome. But now for those of you who are already knowing Jesus and following him, you similarly can find yourself hiding behind technology. Now, you know what it is to come into capital L life, but still, for you and for me, your head can still get lost inside your tech, and that can still keep you from exploring the depth and the riches of this uh, unity with God. Jen Hatmaker writes this great book that uh, we all kind of uh, got a taste of in January called Mutiny Against Excess. And uh, she talked about how her family went on a media fast, like cold turkey, no texting, no laptops, you know, the whole thing that Cabela's talked about, they did that. But not for a day, like Cabela's is saying, not for a week, like a lot of us did in January, but for a whole month, a whole month. She says, 
first thing she noticed was found time. Copious amounts of found time. Right? Uh, but then uh, she noticed one more thing. Several times as I realized that I was caught up on all correspondence, done with laundry, and finished with my to-do list, and all the nagging tasks that always gnawed me, were, that used to be undone, are done. I heard God whisper, Hi there. Oh, I love the picture that she paints there, right? We're just running around like a chicken with her head cut off. And then all of a sudden, we decide to pause. And in that moment, we turn around, and who's just, wait, just waiting for us? Hi there. She goes on. See, God is using this media fast to transform the ease of my communion with him, to find something more relational and more daily, something in the gaps of activities, something of what it means to, quote, walk humbly with your God. Now let's face it, AC3, as Christians, our unity with God often does not suffer for lack of desire. We want this. The picture's painted for us. We want unity with God. We want to know Him and be known. We want the peace and the joy that comes with walking moment to moment in the presence. We want that. It's not an issue of desire. We will say it's an issue of time. And one of the great ironies about technology is that it's supposed to save time, and yet it winds up being a colossal time suck. Or maybe that's just me. You're just looking at me like, is that just me? No? Yeah, you're experiencing this, right? And so we say, I have no time to slow down. I have no time to be alone and to seek God and to engage in spiritual growth habits. But you did have time, like me, for binge watching five seasons of Lost or 45 minutes of SportsCenter or an hour of Facebook chat or an evening surfing YouTube videos, four hours of gaming. Yeah, we had time for that. And I'm not trying to you know, load guilt on you, AC, but let's just be honest with ourselves when we say, well, I don't have time for that. You know what I think it is? It's an issue of how this distracts us then from being focused. And there's all these sorts of things, and media becomes this colossal distraction to our prime directive, to be known by God and to know Him. To illustrate, in December, like idiots, we bought a dog again. <clears throat> And um, we have a puppy who, you know, don't be fooled, don't be fooled. Very cute, very cute. There's a devil that lives in that thing. Is that, she is demon-possessed. Um, uh, let's just say attention challenged, okay? Attention challenged. Um, now, you can't train a dog unless you have their attention, right? And we sat in some dog obedience stuff, so we kind of know what the, the, the drill is like, right? The dog is literally like the dog from up, squirrel. You know, anything and everyone is more interesting than you, right? And you're going to try to train that dog. You have to, first of all, get the dog's attention. Media becomes this great distraction so that we don't have our eyes fixed on the master so that we may learn the life that he wants us to lead. And we're not living in that life, bemoaning that we're not living in the life, but our eyes are focused everywhere but to him. And I have the picture of that with my dog every day. Friends, all the Christians that I've known who have ever started to dive into their birthright of restored unity with God through Christ, they have all put a priority on the spiritual disciplines, the habits we talk about in Life on Purpose. We're going to do that class again this, this week. We run it all the time because it's so imperative that you learn new habits like solitude and silence and like prayer journaling and like uh, getting inside your Bible on a daily basis and personal worship. Why? To focus on God. That's what those habits do. They help you eliminate 
all the distractions. When I think about a well-trained dog, and that is mostly a fantasy at this point, just a, just a dream, just a, a pipe dream. But when I do, and I've seen dogs like this, so I know it's possible, you see a, this good dog, and what is it doing? It's mostly looking at its master. It sits in the room, and when the master is there, when the alpha is there, it's looking up, right? Now, yes, it has other distractions, but almost immediately it says, what, 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 are, we, what are we doing? What's up? Always looking at the master. And they say that about the training, right? In the training process, when the dog has its distraction everywhere, just a little just a little jerk that just says, I'm here, I'm here. And the dog goes, oh, that's right, that's right. Because it's looking to the master for what? For affection, attention, a command, a stroke on the belly, or maybe a game of fetch, a treat, some food. The master is the source of life. And the well-trained dog just lives with an uninterrupted focus. Now, okay, imagine, okay, you got that picture of the, of the beautifully trained dog in your mind? Now I want you to read the scripture with fresh eyes. Psalm 123, verse 2. Like a servant's eyes are on his master's hand. Like a servant's girl's eyes on her mistress's hand. So our eyes are on the Lord our God, that he may show us his favor. That's what you were made for. And as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, friend, you were called to ruthlessly eliminate anything that will stand in the way between you and him so that you could learn the master's way. And that is your great and overarching purpose, to have unity with God. Now let's pray together. God in heaven, I pray for all my friends here in the room today because we're all struggling with this. We're really happy with the fact that we live at the tail end of human history where things are easier, a lot easier. We live longer and we have help for diseases and all sorts of wonderful things that come from the human mind, which comes from your mind. So we thank you for technology. It comes from you. But God, in every way that we are broken, we tend to find that we can make good things into bad things. So help us, Lord, to be ruthless about the things that are standing in the way the things that are interrupting our seeking of you, the things that are ruling our life and sitting on the throne of our hearts instead of you. And as we turn from those things, God, help us develop new habits that would replace this beautiful picture of the obedient servant who is with great attention looking at your hand, just waiting for what might come from you because it's all good, whether it's a command or there's affection or... There's food for our souls or play. Whatever it is, it's going to be good. So, Lord, let us live with that kind of attention, focusing on the presence, because that is our birthright. In Jesus, we pray. Amen.